Church, a man was born in the Middle Ages. Maybe you've heard of him, maybe you haven't. His name was Anselm. Born in 1033, we know him as Anselm of Canterbury. And he wrote all kinds of things that have lasted through the centuries and have come to us. But perhaps his most significant work, especially when we talk about Christ and his atonement and all of the, the work that he did on the cross, he has a book that the title asks a question. And it reads in the original, Curdeus Homo, which means, why the God-man? And it's the question that we, we all need to ask this morning. Why Advent? Why Christmas? Why Jesus Christ? And Anselm's answer was to solve a problem. Because a problem exists, and it's, it's my problem and it's, it's your problem. It's what we all share, and the problem is that God's justice has been violated. God's justice has been violated, and this is a word. The word justice gets thrown around a lot. You read about it in our culture as people fight on the right and the left and all over about what this word justice means, and in Scripture, it's so clear what God's justice means because his justice is defined as his unchanging commitment to doing what is good. We serve a God who does always what is good and always what is right, and he's unchanging in that commitment. So Anselm argues rightly that mankind, not just Adam and Eve in the garden, but all of us have violated God's justice in, in three ways, or it's pictured in scripture in three different ways. Number one, he says, by sinning, you've committed a crime against God. And that's, you're liable to God. You've committed a crime against him, and, and that crime must be punished. R.C. Sproul uh, once famously said, it was a quote that he said in passing, but it became famous, went into the quote books, and is enduring. He said that sin is cosmic treason against God, because he's the author of the universe. So he has authority over all things, and we've sinned against this cosmic authority in the world. And so treason, even here in America, is punishable by what? death. Treason is punishable by death. And so God said in Genesis 2, when he laid down the law there, he said, on the day you eat of it, you may eat of any fruit that is in the garden, but of the fruit that is in the midst of it, in the middle of it, you shall not eat, for on the day you eat of it, you will surely die. It's cosmic treason. It's like an employer telling you, this is how you can see that the justice has been violated. Justice has been violated. If your employer says, we've agreed to work, that you will work a nine to five, and yet you showed up at 9.05 and 9.15 and 9.30 and 10.15 and he comes to you or she comes to you and says, if you're, if you're late again, I have to fire you. And the next day you show up at 9.15. If that boss is good and righteous, what will they do? You're gonna be fired. And they're right to do so. And the same is true of God. You have a problem and it's pictured that you are at the mercy of a God who is committed to doing what is right when you have done what is wrong. And that's the first image. The second one, he says, is that by sinning, you have incurred a moral debt. And it's not just scripture that pictures it this way. When we say of somebody serving their time in prison in America, what are they doing? They're paying their debt to society. We talk about sin as a debt. In Matthew 18, Jesus says, a man is thrown into debtor's prison until he should pay all of his debt verse 35 says. And Jesus turns and says, so my heavenly father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So he says, if you sin against one another, you're incurring a debt. 
And in scripture, it's pictured as a debt that you can't pay. And so here's the second form of our problem, of your problem. You've accumulated a debt that you cannot pay. So here is our problem. This is where we stand. And third and finally, he says it's pictured in that by sinning, we have become estranged to God. Our relationship has been broken. Our relationship has been violated. And we can see it even when we sin against one another. Because when we sin against one another in our relationships with our family and our church and our friends, the relationship is torn. And there's damage that's done. All all the time, um, my wife and I get burglarized. We joke about it. We're just a magnet for this. And I don't know why, if we're too kind or we, I don't, but all the time people are breaking into our home and stealing our stuff. And when this happens, how do we feel? We feel violated. Something has happened to us and they've, they've broken our trust. And I remember distinctly one time where we allowed a friend to come into our home and things got out of control as this person was house sitting. And we got a phone call that said, your house was overrun with people. They were in your bedroom, they were taking your things, they were touching your stuff. And how does that make you feel when you've been sinned against? The relationship is harmed, you've been violated. The same would be true if you found out that somebody that you know had been looking in your window or taking pictures of you without you knowing, how do you feel? You've been violated, there's an estrangement there and it says so is true, not just sinning against one another, but when you sin against God, that relationship is harmed. And there has to be reconciliation in that relationship. You've sinned against God and so estranged yourself from him. And so all of this exposes our great problem that we violated the justice of God. Justice must be done for the offense committed. Moral debt must be paid. Reconciliation must be made so that we can experience or you can experience peace with God. And so we're stuck asking Anselm's question, why the God-man? because he brings the solution to the problem. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter one, verse one. I'll give you just a moment to turn there. And when you come here, the answer begins to become clear. Why Jesus Christ? Why Advent? Why Christmas? John chapter one, verse one. John says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God, and the word was God. And stay here with me. And, and he begins that gospel by, by using the words in the beginning, which brings your memory back to the first words of the Bible. Because in the beginning, we, we obviously, you know, what are the first three words of the Bible? In the beginning. But the first word, that's the first word in the original. The first word is in the beginning. He's trying to say that this person who is here, who is with God and who was God was was there before. John goes all the way back where the other gospels like to start at John the Baptist or they start with Jesus's birth. John goes before and he says, you need to understand, if you're gonna understand Christmas and what happened when Jesus came into the world, then you have to go a step further back and you have to see that there was an entity that existed before creation, at creation, And he was with God and he was God. And this entity was there and it says before anything else, everything that was created came into existence, Hebrews says, by the Son of God. And the Psalms say that everything that has come into existence came by the power of the Holy Spirit. Genesis 1, everything that came into existence came by divine decree of God the Father. And John shows that in the beginning, all of them are there. There's an eternity past, an entity scripture calls the Word. And John says this word was God. 
meaning identical in nature. Philippians is going to say equal, the same in nature, the same in being. And John says, and yet this word not only was God, here's where it gets really peculiar, he was with God. Meaning that not only were they one in nature and in essence and in being, but he's distinct from God. And this is where mystery begins to set in. And I want you to look down to John 1.14. Because he doesn't just share with God and his being in nature, but he shares with God in his glory. And that's how we know, another reason that we know that Jesus is one with God the Father, because it says, and the word became flesh. This is Christmas. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So he was with God, and he was God, and being God, and being distinct from him, the Bible says he took on flesh. How did this happen? It's foolishness to the world that we talk about these things, that the God of glory would take on flesh. And we say in this, the, we use the word incarnation. We, that word gets thrown around all the time and it sounds like a fancy word. It's really not. It just means in, where we get our word in. And fle- or caro, which means flesh. In the flesh. Incarnation. The God of glory. Ironically, veiling his glory by taking on a human nature. By taking on flesh. And we say, does this mean, just to answer one objection, does this mean that God changed If God is the same yesterday and today and forever, does he who cannot change change in order to take on flesh? Because he is now and forevermore will be the God-man. And so did he not change? And we, we say that nothing changed related to anything that was related to his nature. We say, did he change in being? Absolutely not. Did he change in wisdom? Did he change in power? Did he change in holiness? Did he change in justice? Did he change in goodness? Did he change in truth? No, he changed, we say he added, he subtracted by addition. He took on flesh and so veiled his glory behind human nature. And we say with Gregory of Nazianzus in the earliest church for thousands of years, or for 1,700 years, we've said without ceasing to be what he was, he became what he was not. Without ceasing to be what he was, he became what he was not. He changed not. Turn in your Bibles over to Philippians 2 for just a moment. And the Apostle Paul is going to comment on, and and essentially saying the same thing from another perspective, what John is saying. In Philippians 2, verses 6 to 8, a passage you know very, very well. The Apostle says, this Jesus, who we're supposed to be sitting at his feet and learning from his example here in this passage, it says, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He's gonna say he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and the story continues. But this morning we want to see that Philippians is communicating what John is communicating. He says that Jesus and God the Father were equal in eternity past. The same in nature, the same in essence, the same in substance. And it says that he was in the form of God and he took on the form of a servant. I want to pause here for just a moment and say that it's helpful to understand that there's two words for form in Greek. 
And the first one is kind of how we think about it today, where it's an, an attribute that is subject to change. You think water is in the form of ice, and then it's in the form of vapor that changes form. That's one word. And there's another word that means a permanently identifiable nature and character. Which word do you think Paul used to describe the second and the first members of the Trinity? Identifiable in nature, equal in nature and in character. And so Jesus, it says, was in the form of God. He had his very essence and his very nature, and he took on the form, the exact same word, of a servant, of a slave, of, of us, the form of mankind. And this is where we say he was, he was true deity, true humanity, two natures in one person. This is so important. And we don't say that he was fully God and fully man. You know, sometimes that, that gets thrown around and People begin to get confused and they look at the church as if you can have 200% of something, 100% God and 100% man. We don't say it in those terms. We say he was truly God and he was truly man. Vera homo, vero deus, truly God and truly man. And you put this all together and you begin to see the significance of Christmas. That the word, the second person of the Godhead, resolved in eternity past that he would add to himself a human nature. And this he would do in time 2,000 years ago when he would be born, born of a, the Virgin Mary. He would come into the world as a baby and be laid in a manger. And that's what we're celebrating. But we still have to answer the question, why the God-man? Why was any of this necessary? And to bring it to perspective, I want to quote at length an Anglican named Lancelot Andrews, awesome name, who wrote in Christmas in 1606, why it was necessary that Jesus should come, why God had to become man. He says, quote, all Jesus's life, you see both his divine nature and human nature. At his birth, you see a cradle for a child and a star for the divine son. The shepherds honor the baby boy and the choir of angels celebrate the birth of God's son. In his life, you see him hungry, showing his divine nature and yet still feeding the 5,000, showing his divine abilities. At his death on the cross like any man, yet he opens up paradise as only the Son of God could. Why are both of these natures found in one person? Because our nature had sinned and therefore our humanity should suffer. That's the reason why the Savior was born as a human child. But even though our nature should, our nature could not bear it. It could not bear the weight of God's wrath due because of sin. But God the Son could, and thus he was born the Son of God. The one ought but could not, and the other could but ought not. Therefore, either alone would not serve. They must be joined, the child of humanity and the son of God. But because he was the child, he could not have suffered. It would be too great. God had no shoulders, but we do. But ours are too weak to sustain the weight of our own sin. Therefore, that he might be liable, he was a child. That he might be able, he was the son of God. That he might be both, he was both." End quote. That's beautiful. And so here is the answer to our problem, and it comes with it, our faithful gospel. That God became man, that by his own death, he could restore life to the world. And that's what we're celebrating. That's what we're remembering. That's why we're here on Christmas morning. And so going back to the gospel of John, he sums up all of the teaching in that book by writing, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. 
That's why he writes, why do we go back and talk about all these theological things? So you can understand the story, so that you might believe in them, and that by believing in them, you may have life in his name. That's why it's written, so you could understand that the punishment for sin was made at the cross, so that you could understand that your moral debt was paid for, so that you could understand that reconciliation was made possible. And by believing these things, which are ludicrous in the eyes of the world, they're stupid in the eyes of the world, we talk about God putting on humanity and that he would come lowly and humbly, not in power, and that he would die for the sins of mankind. It's, it's foolishness to those who hear these things. But to those who hear and understand and believe, John says it's the power of God for salvation. And scripture says that if you believe in these things, that the God-man came from heaven and laid in a manger, that he took on flesh to solve your greatest problem, that you violated the justice of God, that you were bound for hell and estranged from him, believe that through your faith, he will save your soul and deliver you from death. He says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. And that's the point. Believe today and you will be saved. And you can no longer say, after all these years of silence and all of these prophecies, we now have scripture and it's clear. And we can't say like Charlie Brown said, I don't know what Christmas is all about. I guess I don't understand what Christmas is all about. And when Charlie Brown doesn't understand and his friend Linus comes to him, what does he share with him? The story of Christmas. He comes to him and he says, the birth of the Son of God occurred and there were in the same country shepherds abiding in their fields, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them and they were sore afraid. But the angel said unto him, fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace goodwill towards men or goodwill toward those on whom his favor rests. 